So truth begins and ends with the Word of God, and I, that's an easy statement to make here at Grace Community Church. You all believe that. You're here. Um, but in our culture and in the power structure of our world, that kind of a statement is laughed at. Um, truth does not begin and end with the Word of God. Truth is what you want it to be. And um, when I was younger, the, the Word of God was a reliable source, and now it's not even that. And what I want to do, we are going to end up in Daniel 1 through 4, but I want to set a backdrop for the story. And it's very important to understand um, the background um, of what's going on behind the scenes with Nebuchadnezzar. And I'm going to start in Genesis chapter 2. That shouldn't depress you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in Genesis because there's a long way between Genesis and uh, Daniel. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, is one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. It says this, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And you say, I've heard that verse a hundred times. What's so profound about that verse? Well, I want to show you what's profound about that verse. There are so many implications of the verse that says that God formed man um, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Those two things had to happen. God had to create man, and he had to breathe life into us. Here's the implications. If God created us, did he exist before us? He had to have. Logical, right? So God existed before us. And but for the action of God, those two actions, forming man from the dust and breathing life into his nostrils, you and I would not exist. Okay? But for those two actions of God, you and I wouldn't be here. Our origins are meager and inconsequential. From dust, it says. You see that? In that verse, we are created from dust, and the Bible says to dust we will what? We will return. Profound. Any action by God is driven by the purposes of God. Therefore, while we are created from dust, we are part of the purposes of God. So when I say that our beginnings are from meager means, dust... We are created in the grand purposes of the God of the universe. Because God doesn't do anything without a purpose. And the purposes and plan of God, do you think they existed before we did? They did. In other words, God didn't just pop up and create man according to his purposes. His purposes were established, and then he created man. Humans are, therefore, a subset of a grander plan and purpose. We are part of the plan. We are part of his purposes. We are not the center of the universe. You understand what I mean when I say that? We're just not the center. God is the center. It's his plan, his purposes. He creates us to fit into his purposes and his plan. And yet, in the garden, it didn't take more than a couple of weeks for man to reject everything I just said to you. They rejected the knowledge, and they, believe me, if you and I struggle with this, do you think Adam and Eve struggled with knowing who created them? They didn't struggle with that at all. It just happened. And they rejected the, the authority and the power of the creator, 
within weeks. And while we're not the center of the universe, Adam and Eve were not the center of the universe. They were part of the purposes of God that were established before he created Adam and Eve and were part of that purpose, part of that plan by an all-powerful, all-creative God. And while we're not the center of that, for some amazing reason, we are the center of his love. It's amazing. Such great love that he sent his only begotten son to live a perfect life, to die at the hands of that creation for you and I to rise again and to return to the right hand of his father, offering his creation redemption. All of that for the purposes of his father to offer you and I the forgiveness of sins. What amazing love. I don't know about you, but if I was God and I created man and man rejected me the way man rejects God, I think I might start over. But the love of God for you and I was, is completely different. It's so utterly simple and profound in its simplicity. This truth and even more implication is re, this, this, these implications are reinforced in a psalm. It's a short psalm, 148.5. I know you've read it. I wonder if you've ever thought of it in this way. It says, let us praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and we were created. That's it. God commanded it, and it happened. We were created, therefore we do what, according to that verse? We praise him. We praise him. So the battle for creation, as it's called, is not really about science or the scientific method or or proving... um, that uh, there's no fossils or there are fossils. It really is a battle for the recognition that we are created beings. And as created beings, we are subject to who? The creator. Completely, totally, full stop. There is nothing we bring to the table beyond what the creator gives us. And the creator, by definition, then, is all-powerful, all-controlling, majestic, awe-inspiring, above all other authority. Because all other authority we know about in our life is, is, is it God or is it human beings? It's human beings. And that authority is delegated by God. So he's above all of that. Recognition of that ultimate authority demands and will result in our complete and total submission. As reflected in Psalm 148.5 as praise. The authority of God is established then immediately in Scripture. Genesis 2.5, there is no question about who the boss is, if you will. God created us from dust, breathed life into our nostrils, and gave us life. That's established right away. And it carries all the way to the last page of Revelation where the Creator's authority has its final manifestation in the judgment of the world and the saving of His people from their sins and the consequences of sin, which is what? Death. The extent of His power, authority, and majesty actually defies description. I could try all day to adequately express who God is, and I couldn't do it. So I'm going to let Scripture do it. I'm just going to, you don't have to follow me through this. I'm going to read you phrases out of Psalm 2 
and Isaiah 40 and Daniel 4 describing this big God. This is all part of the background that we have to understand before we jump into the life and the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what, God, here's what the Bible says about God. In Isaiah 40, 22, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. We don't have any ability to conceive of what that means. We can read those words. We still don't know the, le- the length or the width of the universe. We haven't been, it is so vast, we have not been able to measure it. It is God who sits above all of that, who stretches out the heavens. Also in Isaiah 40, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Also says in Isaiah 40, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. That's who God is. That's who we are. Nothing. Psalm 2 tells us he laughs. The Lord scoffs at the rulers and the wise men of this world. So yes, God does have a sense of humor. But I wouldn't want God laughing at me the way he laughs at them. God does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That's from Daniel 4. Isaiah 40, nobody has directed God. Nobody has informed him of anything. Nobody gave God understanding. Nobody taught God justice, knowledge, or the way of understanding. Nobody. That's a big picture, but what about individuals? How are you and I described in the Bible in the context of when God is being described? Well, in Isaiah 40, again, it says people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. God merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Isaiah 40 calls you and I grasshoppers. How many of you like grasshoppers? Grasshoppers are expendable, short life span. They're nothing. Isaiah 40 says, God will come with his might. His reward is with him and his recompense or his judgment before him. His anger will terrify them in his fury. Do you have a picture of a big God? of a powerful God. He made us, he makes the rules, we submit to him. And one day, you all know, every knee will what? Bow. But in the meantime, there's a whole lot of rejecting going on, isn't there? We live in a world of a whole lot of rejecting, of who God is. How many people reject the gospel and refuse to confess Jesus Christ as Lord because they refuse to acknowledge the power of God? and the majesty and the authority of God. And I think it's safe to say that everyone in hell has done exactly that. So this morning I want to study with you the first four chapters of Daniel to see the biography of a man who did just that. He rejected the authority of God flamboyantly in open rebellion for 84 years. This is the story of a very famous man and arguably 
the most powerful political leader that has ever existed. He ruled for well over four decades. And we're used to looking at these first four chapters to study Daniel and his three friends. And I have to tell you, as I prepared to talk this morning, I kept catching myself. I really wanted to talk about Daniel and his three friends. We're not going to talk a lot about Daniel and his three friends. It's an amazing story, just those four people. But I want to flip the coin and bypass them and focus on the man who was Daniel's captor, his, his antagonist in some ways, but also his mentor, Daniel's king, and you will see Daniel, he became Daniel's dear friend. King Nebuchadnezzar. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? And if you're not there yet, you can turn to Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel the rest of the morning. Let me give you a little bit of background on Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's father destroyed Nineveh. You remember the story in Jonah? Okay, Nineveh ended up being destroyed, and it was destroyed, one of the most powerful cities, and maybe the most powerful city at that time on the face of the earth, by Nebuchadnezzar's father. Nebuchadnezzar grew up in that kind of environment. He began as a young prince. Before he was king, he conquered present-day Egypt, Syria, Israel, and Jordan. Back in those days, that's called success. He became the king of Babylon. There's no question that at the time of his reign, he was the greatest and most powerful ruler on the earth to that time and during his time. He conquered most of the Middle East, He had enormous command of human labor, meaning he knew how to take thousands and thousands of people and to create buildings and structures and infrastructure um, that's still studied to this day. He was a creative and design genius. He restored or rebuilt with all that human capital almost every city and temple in the entire country. When he conquered a country, he would rebuild it. He was wealthy beyond imagination. He was wise. He was recognized for being wise. He was powerful. He was politically astute, very competent. You don't reign in that time and era without being politically astute. He was crafty. He was very, let's call him self-assured, very confident. He was very comfortable with a competitive challenge. But... Like most people who don't live in the understanding that they answer to somebody, he is enormously arrogant. And that arrogant demonstrated itself in anger, emotion. He was irrational at times. His anger would make him incredibly irrational. He was boastful. He was afraid, paranoia. Um, He took offense easily. And he was a control freak. Okay, that's all layman's terms for what you're going to see in Daniel 1 through 4. Kind of a summary. Let me explain or give you an example of some of his arrogance. I I would hope none of you would do this, but there's a building inscription of King Nebuchadnezzar at the Ishtar Gate. You can see it if you're over there today. And a translation of that inscription says this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, laid the foundation of the gates down to the groundwater level and had them built out of pure blue stone. 
Upon the walls in the inner room of the gate are bulls and dragons, and thus I magnificently adorn them with luxurious splendor for all mankind to behold in awe. Is that humble? No, he was very confident. But I want you to see how God describes Nebuchadnezzar. So if you could, turn to Daniel chapter 5. And in Daniel chapter 5, and this is really, really important. Remember, God is the ultimate authority. Any authority on this earth has been delegated from God to that authority, whether they recognize it or not. Whether they're presidents, kings, governors, whatever their role is, God has given them that authority. And in Daniel chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Nebuchadnezzar's son is now reigning. I'm fast forwarding to after Nebuchadnezzar's gone, and his father is described to him, to his son. Daniel 5, verse 18. I guess I better get there. I'll start in 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to your father. You see that? To Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Let me read that um, again. The most high God, the creator, Granted, in other words, gave to Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty. I don't think anybody in this room can say pretty much any of that's been given to you from a practical standpoint. That is the level of power that Nebuchadnezzar was given. Verse 19, because of the grandeur which God bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whom, get this, whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. And the implication there is he got to do all of that with the blessing of who? God. Reads a lot like Romans 9. God chooses who he shows mercy to, and he chooses those who he does not. This authority was given to Nebuchadnezzar. It was the power of life and death, and it was the power and fame that comes from wealth, grandeur, and sovereignty. And you all know, because you live in the same world I do, the kind of power and status that are ascribed to people that have wealth and position, and authority. All of it given to him. And Daniel, in in Daniel chapter 5, is making the same point to Nebuchadnezzar's son that he was making to Nebuchadnezzar's father, which is reminding him, everything you have has been given to you. And Daniel 5, 18 and 19, for 84 years was the, the legacy of King Nebuchadnezzar. But we need to see the rest of the story. And for that, turn back to Daniel chapter 1. And if you're looking for an outline this morning, and you might be, it's really simple. It's a Bible verse. James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the what? The humble. That's the outline. Really, what I'm going to do this morning is not teach to an outline. I'm going to tell you a story. And you can read along. I'll let you know 
where I am in Daniel as we move along, or you can just sit and listen. But I'm going to tell a story this morning, and it's the story of an extraordinary guy. And we're going to jump into it in Daniel 1, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Verse 2 is very important because of the verbs. The Lord, what? Gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, small g. Nebuchadnezzar didn't worship God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's courts. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, I just want to pause. This is a very confident king. He just defeated a nation. He took hostages. And he goes to the, his, uh, one of his key uh, leaders, and he says, go into the pool of those hostages and find the best you can find and teach them and train them. He was not scared of them at all. Most political leaders today would say, no, 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 you don't want those people anywhere near power because they'll overthrow you. Nebuchadnezzar never worried about that. The king, verse 5, appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated for three years, at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. I was going to skip six, but I have to do it. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Can't bypass those guys. Amazing young men. Those young men are described in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. It's an important background, and the verb matters. Did they earn it, or did they get it? They get it. They got it. They were given it. Verbs matter, and all the way through Daniel chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and really all the way through the Bible, but for today, you're going to see over and over and over the theme that God gives skill. He gives power. He gives authority. Verse 18, at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. What, were they that good? No, they were appointed by God, and therefore they were that good. Verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the conjurers who were in his realm. And we're going to keep running into these characters the magicians and the conjurers. What kings did in those days is when they had trouble, problems, things they didn't understand, they would bring around them what were called the wise men or the men who had access to other dimensions, if you will, or he believed they did. Today we call them economists, political pundits, <laughs> attorneys, um, 
um, presidential special counsel, assistants. It's the same system. It's the same system. The political leaders of today don't fall on their knees and seek God for answers. They reach out to the people around them, the wise men, for the answers. Nebuchadnezzar's no different, unfortunately. So, that's chapter 1. We're already done with chapter 1. Let's go to chapter 2. God sends a warning shot across Nebuchadnezzar's bow, if you will. God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. It's amazing. Verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, he had a dream. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him, sleepless nights. Then the king gave orders to call in the political pundits, the economists, the lawyers. Nothing against lawyers. I see one in the back. I'm just kidding about the lawyers. (laughs) The magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. Do you see what's happening here? He had a dream. Have you ever woken up and you say, man, that was a terrible dream? And somebody says, what was the dream? And you go, you know, actually, I don't know. Don't remember. Has that ever happened to you? It's exactly what happened here. He doesn't even remember the dream. You and I react to that situation a little bit different than a guy who's been given ultimate power and authority over life and death. The king gave orders in verse 2 to call all these people in. So they came in and stood before the king. Verse 3, the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Verse 4, O king, live forever. You always say that first to a guy like Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, I'm not going to like you. Is that what it says? You're fired. No, he doesn't say that either. You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me the gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, (laughs) you better declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Do you think these people are ever going to be able to tell them what that dream is? Not unless the Lord gives it to them. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. (laughs) You're bargaining for time inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you don't make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words. Here's the paranoia. uh, You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare me its interpretation. It's always interested me when I read that story. If he doesn't remember the dream, how is he going to know that they're telling him the right dream? And don't you think they're thinking about that too? So there's all kinds of things going on here. And Nebuchadnezzar, it's almost like a test. If you wait, you can all concoct what the dream is. Tell the dream to me now. and Nobody can do it. In verse 12, he has a temper tantrum. Daniel chapter 2, he gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be killed. None of the magicians, the conjurers, the wise men could tell him the dream and its meaning. 
it said in it says in verse 12 he was indignant and very furious and when you have the power of life and death that has enormous consequences for people you talk about not making eye contact Nobody wants to be near him, and he orders them all killed. It's typical, typical of someone who believes they answer to nobody. They don't get their way, and there's a temper, there's anger, and then there's destruction. Well, verse, uh, uh, Daniel hears about this, and in verse 16, he goes into the king, and he requests some time. And then in verse 19 to 25, and yes, I am skipping a lot. I'm going to do that a lot this morning because we can't tell the whole story. But you know, the mystery is revealed to Daniel in a night vision, it says. Who revealed it to Daniel? It was God. And in verse 27, Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar an introduction to the true God. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while you were on your bed. Daniel is able to tell him what the dream is, and he will also give him the interpretation of the dream, and Daniel recognizes why this is such a disturbing dream. To Nebuchadnezzar. So in verse 31, he tells him what the dream is. You can read that later. Verse 36, he gives him the interpretation. Verse 36, this was the dream. Now, now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. By the way, that was not a statement of Daniel because he wanted to say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, live forever because I don't want you to kill me. That was a message from God the God of the universe. We know that because of what I read you from Daniel chapter 5. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. Don't miss the sweeping statement that is made there. And it's not from Daniel. It's a message from God. I gave you all of this. The kingdom, the power, and the strength. And wherever people live and wherever there's beasts in the field or there's birds in the sky, you're over all of it. Isn't that remarkable? So, he gives Nebuchadnezzar a civics lesson for the ages, and he had to know that everything he was saying was dangerous. All authorities delegated by God. That's his civics lesson to Nebuchadnezzar. You have all this authority. It was all given to you by God. And part of the lesson here is that all delegated authority is temporary. There is an end to any authority that you've been delegated, but God's authority is not temporary. It's permanent. It's forever. And it's also important to note here that Nebuchadnezzar is a classic illustration of the concept that all authority is delegated by God to imperfect human beings. 
Don't ever forget that. It's true of presidents, kings, rulers. It's equally true of you and I. If you're a parent, you've been delegated enormous authority. Don't ever think that you're qualified. Don't ever think that's because you're such a good person. Authority is delegated to broken, sinful, weak human beings. As a parent, God's delegated authority to you, and you're an imperfect person, and you're dependent on the, per- on the one who gave you that authority. And that's the link that God is communicating to Nebuchadnezzar. So we'll go on with the interpretation. Verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, your day is coming. It's ending. It will be crushed by the kingdom that will never end. Inasmuch as you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is going to end. Now you know why he couldn't sleep. He likes his life. He likes his kingdom. God's kingdom is better. God's kingdom is superior. And God's kingdom is permanent and will replace Nebuchadnezzar's. So we go down to verse 46. Daniel's promoted. He pays homage to Daniel. He's paying homage, though, to the wrong person. And there's a series of confessions, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar, where it looks like Nebuchadnezzar bends the knee and says, okay, you win, God. And one of those is in verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. There's humility, right? And did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. Is that a true confession of submission to God? No. That's a a confession that he's really impressed with Daniel. He can use Daniel. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods, a Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Is that a profession of faith in God? It is not. He is a God. And we, as if you were in first service, you heard how many gods, how many idols there were in that day. Nebuchadnezzar's taking Daniel's God and putting him on the shelf with everybody else. He's just another God. It's a political statement. There is no personal repentance in Nebuchadnezzar. Let's go to chapter 3. Again, a story you might be familiar with. Chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar built an idol, proving that the profession of faith, if you will, at the end of chapter 2 wasn't real. He forgot the message. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Your Bible might say 60 cubits by um, 6 cubits. That translates to 9 stories tall, 9 feet wide. What a weird-looking thing, isn't it? It is what it is. Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. This is a story 
of a command to his people over whom he had the power of life and death, saying, you will worship me. Daniel and his friends refused to bow, of course. You know that story probably. Verse 13, here is Nebuchadnezzar in all his glory. Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. He's already forgotten chapter 2, or the events of chapter 2. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, You will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? What a statement. And yet you understand that statement because Nebuchadnezzar knows he's been given the power of life and death from who? From God. He has that power. But man, has he forgotten the first shot across his bow? What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? This is the statement that defines Nebuchadnezzar. This is the pride that God is going after. And make no mistake, God is going after it. You'll see that before this is over. Here is the theme verse of his life. (laughs) What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? He should already know the answer. And because he already knows the answer, everything is stepped up, stepped up, stepped up. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if God doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar smiled and went home, right? Can you imagine? Nobody talks to Nebuchadnezzar this way. That's strength and courage right there. Our God can and will deliver, but if he doesn't, we still won't serve your gods. And uh, these three young men make God the issue, by the way, not them. They understand what's going on here. The issue is maybe God, there's no question in their mind, God can deliver us, but he might not. But don't mistake that if he doesn't deliver us, that he could have. Do you see that? They don't know how it's going to end up, but they they had the uh, courage of their convictions. Nebuchadnezzar is angry to the point of no self-control. And it's important to understand what angered Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't these three guys. It was the challenge to his authority by their God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were players. What Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do was to prove that their God was impotent. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Have you ever known somebody who's gotten so angry that their whole visage changes? I had a neighbor once who foamed at the mouth. He was so angry when he got angry. 
You see people who just lose their mind because they're so angry. That's what's happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. That's just irrational. Fire is fire. You throw a hot dog in the fire, it's going to burn, right? Do you turn the, fire, the barbecue fire up to high, is it still going to burn? Still going to burn. He is just irrationally, out of his mind, angry. White hot anger. And you know the story. The fire killed the men who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not harmed. They weren't even singed. And Nebuchadnezzar and everybody with him saw those three men and a fourth. And we're not going to dive into that. That's an interesting story. We can talk about that another time. Verse 24 says that Nebuchadnezzar was astounded. He was impressed. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God. If your translation capitalizes deity, that word God is capitalized. He's not saying a God. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god, capital G. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn. What? Here he goes again. Limb from limb. And their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Have you heard that before? Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Now let me just step back for a second. If you saw a presidential declaration issued in this country that said, you will now, blessed be the God of the people of Grace Community Church. And you must worship that God. Would you be excited? I bet a lot of you would be excited. I'd probably be excited. I'd be hopeful. But that wouldn't mean that the person who issued that declaration believed in that God. And what we see here again, is a distance. Nebuchadnezzar is calling, while he's recognizing the authority of capital G God, it is their God, not his. There is that distance. There's no repentance. There's no commitment of Nebuchadnezzar. He assumes the role of God. He still is in a battle with the God of the universe for who's really in charge here. And so what he does is he takes the authority he has over life and death And he plays God, and he says, if you don't worship God, capital G, I will kill you. That's not repentance. That's politics. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is an amazing chapter. I love Daniel chapter 4. Everything we just did was introduction to the main event in Daniel 4. Because Daniel 4 is really interesting. You'll note, if you look at verse 4... It, it switches to the first person. Daniel 4 is the personal testimony of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a story you've heard before. You may not have realized that Nebuchadnezzar is the one telling the story. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace 
I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. We're about 30 years later, by the way. It's all replaying again. He goes back to the same old formula, though. Just to show that what you read at the end of chapter 3 wasn't real for Nebuchadnezzar. He, he confronts another problem. He goes back, like the, the Bible says, like a dog returning to its vomit. He goes to the same old formula of bringing in the wise men, the conjurers, with the same results. They can't tell him the dream. They can't tell him the interpretation. In verse 8, he calls in Daniel. And of course, Daniel knows the meaning of the dream. Why? Because Daniel was good at that? No, because God gave him that. And in verse 19, Daniel was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. This is evidence that Daniel knew this dream was very bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel also remembers the angry, arrogant threats of a cornered megalomaniac like Nebuchadnezzar. But it also demonstrates that Daniel loved Nebuchadnezzar. I think that's why his thoughts alarmed him. And we'll see evidence of that here in a minute. Verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar's problem is diagnosed. Daniel says to him, you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And I just want to pull over here and make an observation. How many of us misinterpret success for um, endorsement by God? If you knew someone like Nebuchadnezzar where you said, you have become great and grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Wouldn't you be tempted to say God's blessing this man? I think so. It's, it, success, power, and adulation are completely deceiving. Completely deceiving. The very goal of Nebuchadnezzar was what separated him from God. His assumption that he was all that. That everything that he had was because of him, not because God gave it to him. God is opposed to the proud. The majesty, splendor, power of life and death, all of it given to Nebuchadnezzar by God. And how is it possible that God does that for Nebuchadnezzar when he is such a proud man? Let me state that again. James 4 says God is opposed to the proud. So if he's opposed to the proud, why did he give Nebuchadnezzar all of this to rule the entire earth? That doesn't sound like God's opposed to the proud, does it? Well, I I think you have to think about it this way. God did that to him, not for him. God gave him all of that because he was proud. And we look at that and we say, what are you talking about? I would want all of that. Or give me... 1% of that, I'd be happy. And the point is, God's purposes are different than our purposes. God did that to Nebuchadnezzar as part of the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. We tend to think that wealth and power is a good thing. Wealth and power just is. It just is. God delegates it to whom he will for his purposes. Read 1 Samuel chapter 2. He gives wealth to who he gives wealth. He gives poverty to who he gives poverty. And you keep reading through 
that amazing chapter, God um, delegates and gives wealth, power, riches, whatever it is you and I think is so important. He does it for his purposes in his time um, and in, in, in his way. And when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, we might be tempted to think, wow, there's a man who's blessed by God. Well, he's given authority by God. Remember all of this as you look at the world around you. Wealth and power are no indication of spiritual condition. Good or bad, by the way. It's not a measure of anybody's heart. Don't misinterpret success as endorsement by God. As you look at the world around you, and as you look at your own bank account, or you look at your own life, a good life, an easy life, is not the measure of whether God is blessing you. So let's move on. Verse 24, Daniel interprets the dream, and this must have been shocking. We know it was shocking to Daniel. It might have been shocking to Nebuchadnezzar if he believed it. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, your boss, the God of the universe, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind and that your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and that you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven years of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And in that, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. This is extraordinary. (laughs) This is the God of the universe The decree of the Most High, that's God, not Nebuchadnezzar, that you are going to go crazy. You're going to live like a cow for seven years. It's going to take that long for you to recognize that God, that that the Most High is God and not you. It will take that long for you to understand that all authority is temporarily delegated by God who has permanent authority. He gives it and he takes it away at his will and his timing. And amazingly, after that seven years, you're finally going to recognize that, and your kingdom will be given back to you. Anybody think that if Donald Trump lived on the hillside eating like a cow for seven years, that he'd get the, the presidency back? I mean, this is God. God gives it, he takes it away, he gives it back. And I read this and I say, man, Nebuchadnezzar has got to know now that when he's being given an interpretation of one of these dreams, he now knows what the future looks like. So maybe rather than go live on a hillside for seven years before you recognize it, maybe you just ought to do it today, right? Well, Daniel thinks so too. Look at verse 27. This is where you see the affection the heart of Daniel for King Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore, O O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. You now know why he's saying that. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. This isn't salvation by works, by the way. might look like that on the face of it. This is a call to repent. Break, you see that? Break away from your sins. 
Break away now from your sins. And it's a call to obedience. Do righteousness. There's repentance, and then there's do righteousness, and then there's a call to abject humility. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar ever showed mercy to the poor? He used the poor. Daniel drops the bomb right down the heart of the matter. Repent, obey, humble yourself. Verse 28. (laughs) Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar refused to repent. And it's important to note, folks, when you get a message directly from God like this, and you still don't repent, do you understand the hardness of man's heart? And that's not a judgment of the world around us. That is a source of celebration for you and I who have repented, that God broke through our hard, unrepentant heart and gave us repentance. Nebuchadnezzar refused it. Nebuchadnezzar's making God work. God is chasing Nebuchadnezzar. Amazing, amazing love. That big, big God is going after Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, this is all first person. But then verse 28, it flips to the third person because something significant happened. It all came true. This all happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. A year later, 12 months later, he's walking On the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Wow. (laughs) Amazing. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Nebuchadnezzar is about to learn very personally that God gives authority and he takes it away. And verse 32, and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven years will pass over you until you recognize the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. This is the theme of, All the way through Daniel, God gives authority. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. Think about that, like eagle's feathers, it's matted, it's thick, and his nails like bird's claws. And you say, that's really weird. That's never happened before. Well, maybe it hasn't happened before, but it has happened since. This is a real thing. It's a known phenomenon. Um, I found this from the 1940s. A biblical scholar, R.K. Harrison, recounted his personal experience. I'm going to read this to you. The present writer, therefore, considers himself particularly fortunate to have actually observed a clinical case of lycanthropy in a British mental institution in 1946. The patient was in his early 20s who reportedly had been hospitalized for about five years. His symptoms were well developed on admission and diagnosis was immediate and conclusive. He was of average height and weight with good physique and was in excellent bodily health. 
His mental in, uh, symptoms included pronounced antisocial tendencies, and because of this, he spent the entire day from dawn to dusk outdoors in the grounds of the institution. His daily routine consisted of wandering around the magnificent lawns with which the otherwise dingy hospital situation was graced, and it was his custom to pluck up and eat handfuls of the grass as he went along. On observation, he was seen to discriminate carefully between grass and weeds. And on inquiry from the attendant, the writer was told that the diet of this patient consisted exclusively of grass from hospital lawns. He never ate institutional food with other inmates, and his only drink was water. The writer was able to examine him cursorily, and the only physical abnormality noted consisted of lengthening of the hair and a coarse, thickened condition of the fingernails. Without institutional care, the patient would have manifested precisely the same physical conditions as those mentioned in Daniel chapter 4. It's a real thing. Nebuchadnezzar, for seven years, is wandering the grounds, eating grass, and drinking water for the whole nation, the whole world to see. And then verse 34 it flips back to the first person. And now you tell me whether this is real. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. Sounds a little different, doesn't it? And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What a testimony. Can you imagine hearing that testimony in the baptismal on a Sunday night? Guess what? You hear it every Sunday night. Maybe it's not that dramatic. But all of us, it, it says in the Bible, we have a heart of stone that's pulled out and replaced with a heart of flesh. And how do we know this is real? Because Nebuchadnezzar was told before the seven years started that he was going to do this, that God was going to replace that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, that he would recognize who God is. What a glorious doxology. Worship, he expresses who God is and what he's done. And based on who God is, Nebuchadnezzar buckled. It's not based on what God did to him. You don't see a reference to that. You, say, you see him say, I now know who God is. Verse 36, at the same time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. And you say, whoops, he just fell off the wagon, didn't he? It's not a statement of pride, it's a statement of praise. God did all of that. It's all preceded by that statement of God did this. And it's just amazing to me that after seven years of crazy, his kingdom is restored to him. That does not happen unless God does it. Verse 37, now I, here it is, I, this isn't Daniel's God, it isn't a God. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, 
exalt and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. How did Nebuchadnezzar know that? That was his testimony. He's able to hum- he was able to humble Nebuchadnezzar. It took 84 years. Ne- Nebuchadnezzar was 84 years old when this happened. You see, God is opposed to the proud, and sometimes that opposition is by giving so much power, so much splendor, so much authority, that the person becomes so dis, uh, um, disconnected from reality that they start thinking they're God. But he gives grace to the humble, and that grace is salvation. And, you know, I skipped Daniel 4, 1 through 4. Some of you might have noticed that. Let's go back and read that. I didn't want to give away the story. But remember in Daniel 4, he goes to the first person in, in, um, in verse 4. Let's look at the verses 1 through 4. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples. This is written by Daniel. The king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. That is likely written by Daniel, and Daniel is writing the introduction to the testimony and the baptismal on Sunday night. He's basically saying, you're about to read an amazing testimony of the power of God. You see, the story this morning is, is not about Nebuchadnezzar. The story in Daniel 1 through 4 is about God. Nebuchadnezzar says, I bless the Most High and I praise and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted for as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. I'm just rereading all the statements Nebuchadnezzar makes in his testimony. Nobody can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. And if he was standing right here, he would tell you, don't get confused about what this story is about. That's who the story is about. What a great God. Nebuchadnezzar lives another year, approximately. We're not really sure. He dies and his kingdom falls apart. And you can read the rest of that story. I mean, that's how tenuous his kingdom was. And yet seven years of roaming on the hills, eating grass. And he survives that. We started out this morning hearing some of the description of the immense power of God. I'm going to go back to Isaiah 40. You don't have to um, look there. Isaiah 40 is one of my favorite chapters, maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible, because it talks about a very big God, a very big God. And in verse 10, Isaiah 40 can actually sound like an angry God because we're so afraid of authority, aren't we? If we're smart, we should be. Sounds like an impersonal God, maybe an angry God, and God should be angry. But in, the amazing, in, in his amazing grace and design, he's a personal and a loving God. And I just want to show you this, and then we'll be done. Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God, I've already read this to you, will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. 
This is all in the context of God sitting above the circle of the earth, and nobody teaches him wisdom. Nobody gives him authority. He is everything we said this morning, and he's bringing judgment with him. Verse 11 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. (laughs) Like a shepherd, in the midst of this recompense, and God is big, and you are grasshoppers, and nations are like fine dust, in the middle of all of that, one verse, like a shepherd, God will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs, that's you and I, and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Isn't that amazing? That great, big, impersonal, powerful, authoritative God is also our shepherd because he picked us out. He tends us. He gathers us in his arm. He carries us in his bosom, and he gently leads us. That's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he's talking about in Isaiah 40, verse 11. He's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about you and I the creator God of the universe from whom all power and authority derives as a shepherd. And he gathers us in his arms. He carries us. He leads us. He pursues us. And if you're saved, Nebuchadnezzar's story is your story. We don't talk about Nebuchadnezzar like, what a dummy. Boy, 84 years? Took him 84 years? I'm not mocking him when I say that. What I'm telling you is what a loving God who pursued Nebuchadnezzar for 84 years. And once he recognized who God is, acknowledged that, Nebuchadnezzar was done. Indeed, God is opposed to the proud, and you you shouldn't doubt that. As you examine, hopefully, your own heart, it's hard to be an arrogant Christian. God is opposed to the proud. Don't play around with that, but God does give grace to the humble. And don't ever forget that God humbles us, that even our humility is a gift from God. Because in our own state, we're just like Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to find every way to acknowledge our own authority and ignore God's. What a great gospel, isn't it? What a great salvation. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, I pray that the the folks here this morning would be so encouraged by that story. Lord, we thank you for his life, for his story that was preserved for us, and mostly we're thankful for the God who gave him all that authority, who reached down and touched his heart because it reminds us of our own salvation. Lord, we're thankful for you granting us humility, for granting us a heart of flesh, for granting us repentance so that we would begin even to recognize who you are and what you've done for us. We love you. We're grateful to you. And Lord, I pray that we would go from here um, with a new recognition and a new appreciation for who you are and how great a salvation we've been given in Christ's name. Amen.